Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Morning Ramble. We have with us a special guest by the name of Michael Rubino, here to speak on regaining your health after mold exposure and sensitivity. Very interesting topic. Michael is the author of an informative book titled The Mold Medic, where he goes into detail advising readers on how to choose a mold remediation company and the exact process the company should be using, also explaining how to recover from mold-related illnesses. He and his company, All America Restoration, have been featured in USA Today, NJ Biz, Reader's Digest, New Jersey Monthly, and Digital Trends. He, has also, he was also selected as a speaker for the Spring 2020 Indoor Air Quality Association meeting and expo. He's received a Bachelor of Science degree in 2008 and is a council certified microbial remediator from the American Council for Accredited Certification and a New York State Department of Labor remediation contractor. He has spent the past several years involved in construction and remediating mold contamination. Very impressive. To learn more about Michael and his work, check out the websites, themoldmedic.com and allamericanrestoration.com. Pleased to have you with us. And Thanks so much for having me. Where is your business located and how many locations do you currently have? Well, it's a great question. We actually have three locations. One's in Anaheim, California, uh, you know, basically handling the uh, Southern California, including the Los Angeles area. We have one in Freehold, New Jersey, which pretty much takes care of the tri-state area in the Northeast U.S. And then we have one in Clearwater, Florida, which takes care of pretty much the Southeast. And by the way, with those locations, we pretty much cover nationwide in terms of helping people who are susceptible to environmentally acquired illness. Okay, so multiple people have access to what you are offering. Give us a quick refresher on exactly what mold is and where it is more likely to come into existence in the home specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So mold is a living organism, and I think that's something we have to remember because a lot of times we think it's just something that we can wipe off uh, once it's inside of our homes. We just wipe it away like we would dirt or, or, or something of that nature. Mold actually starts to grow in our houses because of the opportunity for it to grow. You see, mold is part of our ecosystem, just like kind of weeds are in our front lawn. And the reason I mention weeds is actually there's a good correlation there. You know, weeds, they have roots that grow into the soil. They produce seeds. Those seeds get aerosolized. They fall into, into the soil. And as soon as it rains, it provides that opportunity for it to grow and it starts to grow. Mold is very similar. It's already part of our ecosystem. It, it's outdoors, right? You open your window, you're going to have some mold come in. But as long as you control the environment and, and remove the opportunity for mold to grow, that mold that comes into the environment, it's just like a seed, right? That seed comes into the, into the place. If it's got no soil to grow in, if it's got no moisture, it won't begin to grow. With so, mold, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say with mold, you know, typically what happens is we'll have a leak in, you know, from a window or from a roof or, you know, a toilet leaks, shower, something like that, right? The source of water. We already have some mold in our house and it just starts to grow from there because the opportunity for it to grow is present. How many people in the U.S. have suffered from mold exposure and which pre-existing health issues makes one more susceptible to mold related issues if they become exposed? You know, it's it's an alarming rate. So the largest study ever done was in 1994 by a gentleman named John Spengler. 
John identified that 50% of the homes that he came across had signs of water and damage. 80% of those 50% had evidence of visible mold growth, right? So that's pretty alarming. We're, We're saying at least a third of the population has some sort of mold exposure. Now, out of those people, we know that one in four people are susceptible to environmentally acquired illness. What that means is they have some sort of predisposition, whether it's Lyme disease, autoimmune disorder, autoimmune disease, pans and pandas, steers, all these different uh, pre-existing conditions that now basically weaken their immune system so that something like mold can impact them, essentially overloading their immune system, causing them to really what we consider uh, environmentally acquired illness. Do you have any information or numbers or an estimate on how many of those cases were involving children? Uh, you know, I don't. I know that uh, we're estimating about 300,000 children are exposed to, uh, you know, pans and pandas um, every single year. So it, it's, it's an alarming number, um, you know, to be sure. I don't know the exact number offhand, but it's definitely something that is on our radar as, as in terms of what's being studied. And, um, you know, we, we are concerned about the effects on children. With mold, with mold exposure versus lead poisoning and children having been pre, like how when, remember when there was a time when they were telling people to make sure that children aren't putting paint chips in their mouth, especially in low yeah. income areas. Mold exposure versus lead poisoning, which one has a more profound effect on children or, and how are those two related? Which one is worse as it relates to a child touching mold and ingesting it in their mouth and a child with a paint chip and eating that or swallowing it? Like what's the difference? Which is worse? Well, you know, what's interesting is what, what lead can do to somebody is, is actually being studied much more than what mold can be do to somebody. We actually have rules and laws against lead-based paint, right? And uh, lead-based paint having to be abated, um, having, you know, maintaining lead-based paint, all of these things. Whereas with mold, we know that if we see mold, you know, we should probably remove it, but there's really not that many laws that govern it the way, the same way that we do with lead. And I think that's the problem, right? So there's so much inform- misinformation out there in terms of what mold can do to somebody, even with children, right? And so, Right now, we know that there's an awareness campaign of, you know, you really shouldn't have your kids eating paint chips because anything before 1978 has a, a potential for it to contain lead, right? And so that's great information. With mold, you know, we're not sitting there telling people if there's mold, you know, your kids should stay away from it or, you know, you should stay away from it. And I think that's really where the problem is. is I think mold, it doesn't have the awareness that it needs so therefore, it's kind of like this silent killer in, in a way where you just don't see it coming. Is there a government-sponsored program that tests yearly or every two years for mold in low-income areas? No. Basically, the, the, the way you get somebody to test for mold is to complain about it, to make them aware of it. Um, you know, like usually in, in, uh, big cities like New York or Chicago, there's a number you can dial. I know in New York, it's three, one, one. And when you dial three, one, one, and you complain about it, once the complaint 
is received, they may then send an inspector out to inspect the premises. And from there, they'll identify that maybe a mold inspector needs to come in and do an inspection and, and do a remediation. And they kind of levy uh, fines against, you know, the landlord in this case until it's resolved. And, you know, I think that any these cities, they get overwhelmed with these types of requests. So I think they're slow to respond and mold can wreak havoc, uh, you know, the longer that it takes to get responded to. And so I think, you know, we're, we've made some movements over the past 20 years, but I don't think we're where we need to be. With mold being a living organism, if it is ingested, does the stomach acid kill it? Like, does uh, what happens after mold is ingested? Like, through, I know it can be absorbed through the skin, correct? Yeah. So, you know, the tricky part about mold is the size of it. So anything between smaller than 10 micrometers, and mold happens to be between two and four micrometers, it's so small that it passes through our normal self-defense mechanisms, such as the respiratory tract, and immediately it enters our bloodstream. That's where it can start to be disruptive. It can, you know, our immune system reacts knowing that it's a foreign substance entering the body. And that's what gives this like allergy like reaction. Uh, And then as it it can disrupt the microbiome of the gut, um, you know, there's a lot of complaints about leaky gut. It can start to make you feel fatigued, uh, produce neurological symptoms like brain fog where you start, you know, you start stringing together words into a sentence and kind of losing train of thought, not really know where you're going, things like that. And then it can produce, you know, skin issues, because like you mentioned, yes, it can definitely impact the skin, Um, can produce rashes, hives, eczema, things like that. And then as we know, the respiratory symptoms, it can produce, you know, uh, respiratory disease, respiratory infection, um, and even asthma. How does one regain their health after mold exposure? So typically one regains their health by detoxifying. And I think with mold, there's a a part of the population that has the HLA-DR gene. We call that the mold gene. When you have this gene, your body is methylating properly, which basically means that you're not detoxifying. And so again, you know, we say that about 25 to 30% of the population has this gene, is a carrier of this gene. And so they don't quite detoxify the way the other 75% detoxify. Now, even non-carriers of this gene can also, everybody has their toxic load, if you will. And so whatever that threshold may be, once you've surpassed it, your body starts to fight itself. It starts to shut down. That's when you really start to feel the debilitating effects of it. And so what you want to do is you want to eat like an anti-inflammatory diet because mold will produce inflammation in the body. And you want to, you know, take things like a binder, which is, you know, activated charcoal is a good example of one. Uh, You want to try to bind these toxins uh, within, you know, the binders itself and try to excrete them out of the body. So take us through the process of what one can expect when hiring a mold remediator to come out. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to hire a good inspector. Now, an inspection should really look like a home inspection when you're about to buy a home. They should spend hours inside your home looking at every nook and cranny, trying to figure out where the mold is potentially coming from. They're going to essentially create the blueprints. I call it the blueprints because basically the testing data itself 
is going to be able to tell you the scope of work that you need to perform in order to remove the mold. So that's really the first line of defense. You then take that scope of work, you contact mold remediation companies like myself, and you ask them to give you a price based upon that scope of work. And the scope of work should really include three things. One, removing the colonization of mold. Two, fixing the conditions that allow the opportunity for mold to grow in the first place, such as you know fixing a pipe leak or you know fixing a roof leak, et cetera. And three, removing the contamination that has been created by that source or colonization of mold. And so it, once, once you've adapted all three items, you know that the remediation is going to be successful. Is it costly and does homeowner insurance usually cover it? It can be very costly, uh, depending on you know the size of the problem and how much work is needed to restore the home properly. And yes, home insurance will cover it. However, of course, just like anything else, there's caveats. One of the first things being, you have to make sure you have mold coverage as part of your policy. Sometimes when you're calling your broker saying, you know, I need home insurance, um, they're not explaining the insurance coverage as well and not really allowing you to make an informed decision. For instance, they may not tell you that the standard coverages they're offering you doesn't include mold coverage. Next, you want to find out what your policy limits are for mold. For instance, some people, if they do have mold coverage, it's a standard cap of 10,000. Well, you want to up that. You know, I recommend upping it as much as you possibly can. And the reason being is because if you have a big catastrophic loss, you'll want to make sure that you have enough mold coverage in there to do the project. Otherwise, if you have a $10,000 cap, for instance, and let's say it's a $40,000 project, you're going to be stuck paying the difference of that $30,000. So go ahead and call your insurance company today and up your coverage to make sure you're protected. You'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Should we wait for a leak or water damage or should we be testing yearly for mold in the home? Specifically. You know, honestly, I believe in proactiveness instead of reactiveness. And by that, I mean, yeah, you should. Because if you don't notice a problem, then that means that if there is one, it's going to be a small problem, which means it's going to be less costly to deal with. Now, if you wait for something to happen, typically it starts to expose itself, right? Now you notice mold growing on the wall. Well, that means that obviously there's been a leak that's been happening for a while that just got worse and worse and worse until it finally made itself visible. Now it's going to cost you more money at that point than it would have if you found it when it was a smaller problem. So I would say definitely be proactive, try to get an annual inspection, look at things like your roof, your windows, your doors, get a mold inspector to check your air quality. And typically a mold inspector, they're an environmentalist. So they'll be able to test for other environmental issues such as VOCs or formaldehyde. And these are good things just to make sure that your levels are okay and nothing is out of the ordinary that could cause detrimental health effects. I want to speak a little bit more on low income areas. Do you know if there is a government sponsored program that tests for lead in those areas? I believe that most areas will have something like the 311 that I mentioned earlier in New York, where you could actually complain and based upon the age of the building, if they have an idea that there could be lead-based paint and you see something like potential paint chipping somewhere, 
-hmm. you can put in a complaint where they will send somebody out to analyze and make sure that it is not lead-based. Because if it is, then they will put the landlord on notice to make sure that the repairs are made properly. And there is no testing similar for, for mold that you're aware you know, of? There is testing, right? You can okay. do testing of the air. You can do uh, what's called swabs or TAFE lists to test you know, wall structures to see if mold is growing on that. But you do have to call someone like a 311 or you know, Department of Health to come out and investigate. So they, it's, it, Okay, go ahead. I was going to say, there's no like free government funded program where you can just call and pick up the phone and they'll come out and do testing. There has to be some sort of complaint lobbied first. I was thinking that they were just doing it every year as a regular maintenance to like low income apartment complexes or low income houses that they were just as a yearly maintenance or every two year maintenance, they would come out and test for lead a test for molding. I wasn't aware that you had to, somebody had to complain and then they would come out. That's what you're saying, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it's not right. Actually, there's a, a company that I'm creating. It's a non-for-profit. Uh, it's called the Healthy Home Initiative. And it's really aimed at underprivileged communities that really should be warranted the same air quality that's, that anybody else should, right? And so what we are going to specifically do is lobby government-funded programs such as HUD and say, hey, look, some of this funding that you're utilizing to, you know, promote inner city growth, I think we also want to look at air quality and health, right? Because here's the thing, when, and I'm going to get political here. When someone isn't well enough to work, how could you expect themselves to lift themselves up by their bootstraps, right? You can't. And so I think in order for this to happen, we have to take a more serious approach about how air quality impacts our health. And obviously, this is going to impact, you know, inner cities that are not well funded for this exact reason, because mold's already expensive for the average person. Mm -hmm. And so for someone who, who isn't, uh, you know, strict into the rules with landlords and things like that, that are forced to do the right thing, they're going to be the adverse reaction of whatever these landlords are allowed to get away with. And so I think that I am very passionate about this, this next project, this next chapter of my life with the Healthy Home Initiative. And this is exactly what the aim and goal uh, is to achieve, to create that awareness and make sure that underprivileged families are, are being helped. Okay, Michael, we're going to wrap things up. Is there anything else you would like to share before we close out? Um, no, I think we covered a lot today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome back anytime. Bye. Bye.